Well, hello, everyone. It is Christine Marie Mason here with episode 110 of the Rose Woman podcast, where every episode I try to do a little something to expand our thinking, to create a little bit more freedom and liberation, cover science and spirituality, we cover psycho-emotional growth, cover sexuality, plant medicines, all kinds of tools that we can use to live together better, to be happier, to be more free. So this is a solo episode, but as always, heavily backed by research. And I am talking about discipline, blissipline, and dogma. Basically, how do we find the sweet spot between discipline and dogma and explore a little bit of the positive and negative aspects of specificity and control on the one hand and openness and acceptance and fluidity on the other. And before we get too deep into the topic, I'm going to you know, drop in and tell a few stories. Well, actually, the first story is actually two stories. It's the story I would call the story of two tents. Over the last week, I've uh, been in two different environments of people sitting around in a tent together. The first one was a very traditional uh, Native American teepee ceremony. And I'm going to describe that in full. And the next one was a gathering of friends in a dome-like environment. And it was very unstructured and fluid and had a very different feeling tone. So I want you to travel with me to Western California, almost to the ocean, midway down the coast, up in a low-lying mountains near Santa Cruz, in a high plain where people have already prepared a flat surface and layered it with play sand so that it's a very sandy, firm base, very easy to erect a structure. And on that base, they've mapped out the exact dimensions of a circle with pinpoints on the four directions, east, west, north, and south. And then on the other side, over on the grassy area, are arranged poles in uh, differing lengths with pointed tips that are carved and curved. They're, they're laid out on the grass and numbered. A whole bunch of people arrive and they line up. The women are wearing long skirts and the men are covered in their shoulders and, and it's very respectful dress. And a roadman, in this case a, an, a, an indigenous North American roadman, uh, leads a blessing on the build because even the erecting of the teepee is done in a very ceremonial way. And then there's this process of putting the teepee together, which is so deeply specific. Um, I'll describe a little bit of it to you. So the first four beams are brought over and they're laid out on the floor at a right angle on the ground at a right angle. And they're bound at the top and they're bound in a very specific way so that when the group lifts the legs of the teepee up into the air, the legs of these four logs, they are, they are pivoted out, like two are splayed to form the doorway, and the other two are pulled out like a tripod to create uh, back legs. And then one by one, each of the uh, subsequent teepee legs are brought in, and they're put up butt first, like you carry, two people carry them over. If the butt goes in, it's braced, it's lodged up against the top. And then a person who is lashing them together kind of runs around and leaps around and 
takes the rope and binds the top even further. And it's quite a beautiful dance. Like a, there's like a pulling and a tightening and getting the friction just right and getting, getting the tension just right and making it very, very stable. And what's beautiful is that the order in which the legs are put up is creating up at the top of the teepee structure a, a fan-like opening that almost looks like a peacock tail. It's, a, it's like a, a bird's tail, uh, and they're arranged in a, a beautiful geometry. And it's, it continues to go up. All the legs are, are put in. And then a final pole is, is prepared, and that contains the skin, the, sh- the, the fabric that will wrap around and create the walls. And even that is done ingeniously. The wrapper, the last time it was used, was put back in a very specific way such that it could be rested middle on one of those poles, unrolled, anchored at the bottom and anchored at the top, and then hoisted and unfurled around the structure very explicitly and perfectly. Then when it gets around to the front, it's tugged tight and pinned in a very specific way. The, there's alternating pins that close the top of it, almost like a, a zipper, but not a zipper, kind of like differing tack pins. And those are done in a ceremonial way, alternating, in this case, men and women putting in each pin. And then the flaps, and then it's anchored to the ground. And then these two additional sticks come up, and they are longer than the rest, and they go into what's called the ears. And those are flexible to be able to allow for the flaps to be open wider or closed tighter, depending on how much smoke and air and water and everything else is meant to be going in and out of the structure. And then you notice that the structure itself is aimed directly at the east so that when the roadman is later conducting the ceremony, as he gazes up into the night, he can always tell the time by the position of the stars, by the light, by the color in the sky, uh, and the smoke is going up and out that way, and, and it's really uh, going against the prevailing winds. So just ingenious. During this process, there was not a single moment where people weren't being bossed around. Everyone was being told exactly what to do. Don't step this way, walk around this way, walk clockwise, don't do that, don't step over the beam. You know, it was ceremonial. And you can imagine that if you didn't have this kind of specificity and discipline in both the preparation and the setup, that a lot could go wrong. I mean, first, people could get hurt. But second, imagine you're a nomadic tribe and you're trying to put up a structure rather quickly. If you didn't have this level of detail, everything could collapse. Like you could really like end up with a lopsided or leaky structure or unsafe structure, uh, or at the very least, you might end up having to do it all over again and waste time and waste energy and you're doing it in the hot sun. So what a beautiful geometric process. There were several moments when my little magic eye was in total thrill, like even before the skin went on, the shadows that the frame cast onto the ground look like mystical, old uh, hieroglyphs, you know, they, they were so beautiful. Then I realized they were a clock, you know, they're 12 legs. So it looks like the dial of a clock in some way, like a sundial. Then after that, pillows are arranged on the inside of the teepee and people get ready to do the ceremony. There were so many details. This is a an all night sit. So you go in around seven o'clock or eight o'clock in the evening and you sit up preferably on your knees the entire night until maybe 10 or 11 the next morning. And it's a Native American church ceremony. So 
for me, this is my first time participating. I went as the guest of a friend of mine who is a chief who was having the cer- the ceremony conducted on his behalf as a blessing for him. And so I, I learned so much during the process. It, they use a substance, uh, it's peyoteism in the Apache and Dini traditions. And, and peyote is a cactus. It's a, a cactus that contains a psychedelic substance and you ingest it orally. It's either a powder or raw peyote buttons or a tea that is served periodically throughout the night, again, in very ritual format. And other things that happen during the ritual include many, many, many prayers, many um, ongoing chants, and the beating of a ritual drum. And this ritual drum I want to also tell you about. It's called a water drum, and I fell in love with it. Like it's a it's a metal container that's filled with water, and then the skin is wrapped over the top, and it stays wet the whole the whole night. And the pacing of the beat of the drumstick on the skin is very fast. Like that very intense and very clear and and constant. And then with that, uh, the drummer is playing the drum and that's considered a particular role of service. Then the, the a staff is passed around and a rattle for various people to lead chant like to be to sing their their prayers to sing these chants and so the 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 tempo of the entire evening is set by this this sitting up in this discipline and the playing of this drum and this chanting and then once in the middle of the night a water bucket is passed around so people can hydrate and again near morning a water bucket is passed around and in the meantime a fire that is in the shape of a half moon, like a half moon sand barrier, and then a half moon of a bed of coals, which is constantly fed and maintained and very specifically arranged, aligned, geometric precision, uh, leveled out constantly, um, you know, that the coals themselves are almost like tea leaves for visions, like that people see things emerging in the coals and messages and shapes and forms are in the coals. And the fire is kept all night going in a certain way. And it is also, you know, the sub, like the colors change, the fire turns green, it turns purple, people see things in the fire and the smoke produces visions like spirits and it'll go through little tornado turns and very, and the, and the room will pulse over the course of the night with different movements of people getting what they call getting well, like uh, having, you know, a vomit response or a heaving response or something like that and, and, and purging old things in their lives or in their spirit. Uh, there's all kinds of things that are happening with elders doing, uh, working with feathers and, and clearing out spirits and giving teachings. And it's, it's so potent. And I want to say that so much mystery and beauty happened in this space, and I'm incredibly grateful to be included. And then the second thing I was noticing that for me, it really involved, like I was a guest, and I didn't know the protocols. And many of the people who were there were advanced and regular participants and practitioners, maybe two two of us or three of us were true guests. And the level of you're doing it wrong for all these kind of small incursions, your cup's in the wrong place, your sage stick is turned the wrong way. And it wasn't met with like an invitation to do it right. It was met with like, oh my God, you're messing up the ceremony. 
And so for me, the anxiety that it came that came with potentially doing it wrong or offending my host or not being able to sit on my knees all night or I had to leave the tent at one point to urinate during the break. And, you know, it was clear that real practitioners, real disciplined practitioners would stay all night and they would never need to relieve themselves in the 16 hours that we were there. You know, so I have all of this, this secondary medicine that's coming my way. Uh, around examining my relationship to doing it wrong, to shame, to authority. So I want to put that on a bookmark and come back to it later. The second tent experience was being invited by my friend Stephanie, who's really a magical photographer and artist, to visit a dome that she was familiar with, with a bunch of other people, and to play with sound in that dome. And again, people had a little gathering together, they did a blessing, they called in the directions, everybody sat at the edge of the tent. But this one was very different. People took turns getting up and offering their gifts and their prayers and their exercises. And, and then it went around the circle and they, um, people introduced themselves and what they were passionate about and what their strengths were. And it turned into like a sense of really deep intimacy. There was absolutely no structure other than a little bit of guidance from Stephanie as the MC. Um, it was very emergent. And yet it was also incredibly potent. And for me, in my story, of belonging, like how we're related, it became a very important contrast to what I experienced in this more formal ceremonial container. So I started to think about the question of precision and like how much I love precision. Like you know, if you've been listening to the show for a while, that I've been practicing yoga for many, many years, like 23 years now, I think, and teaching for 20. And so when I was taught yoga, uh, initially, the teachers that I had really taught me to bring fire and make demands on my body to force my body. And I was already kind of entrained in the cultural idea that you have to dominate your body. And as a woman, you have to make it look a certain way and that I had to be perfect to be accepted. And so that first wave of yoga gave me structure and a pathway to be perfect. Like, how could I be perfect? And what I found is that I was bringing the same sort of dominance lens to my yoga practice as I was to my life, not allowing, not, not emerging. And then I met my teacher, Mark Whitwell, who I've talked about. There's, I have one episode sort of reintroducing myself um, that I tell the story of how I met Mark. And I would love it if you would listen to that if you're at all curious about him. And his yoga was really about breathing and being natural. So... When I met him, I really changed the way that I taught. I, I never offer yoga now in any other way other than to aim to use it as a tool for promoting self-love and curiosity and connection with the body and breath. And if I am transmitting a traditional principle or an element of precision, I do it as an invitation, not as an imposition. I don't use these ancient practices to make people wrong or to feel less than or to impose on them or to make demands on their body. I want them to love it and to do it deeply out of love. Because if you do create this like, you're doing it wrong feeling tone, then someone who comes into the yoga room who could benefit might feel unwelcome or uncomfortable or bad about themselves or ashamed for being a beginner or something like that or for not being flexible. And then they don't come back. And so I think about the places where we as leaders and teachers 
need to create a welcoming environment for newcomers and be conscious of when we're creating layers of insider language and and tiers of like cult-like inner knowledge. And and more than with beginners, I mean, in addition to with beginners, I also think we think we, we should take a look at for a moment what happens when you have such stringent rules that people have to abide by in cultures like a sport or in a religion or something like that, and people don't abide by them. I mean, you have in, in like I have a friend who's a who was a pro tennis player, and she tells stories about how her coach treated her, how demanding and abusive and even sexually abusive he was, and how that had to be hidden. That's like almost a cultural meme in things like gymnastics coaches and and all of those things, or martial arts coaches who under the guise of, you know, wax on, wax off, karate kid stuff, you know, I'm teaching you are kind of assholes to their students. And uh, cult abuse and pastoral abuse comes to mind as well. I have a, a friend who has been hanging around for, you know, over a decade, and he was a Jehovah's Witness and left that that religion. And, you know, his own family excommunicated him for not believing what they believed. So rigid and strong was their orthodoxy. And in my opinion, that is just straight up evil, straight up evil. That isolation and that threat of isolation to keep people in is a pure psychological abuse, does not honor at all God's intent or spirit's intent with any individual. So anyway, that is all as a precursor to today's longer topic, which is you don't have to do it right finding the sweet spot between discipline and dogma. So, okay, big breath. (sighs) Okay, so I love and appreciate specificity because I love beauty. Details in line and color and harmonic design. I love the soaring notes in a perfectly played piece of music. The line on a graceful S-turn on a bluebird day on a freshly powdered mountain the exquisite hand motions in hula, if you've ever seen that. And I especially like, as I said before, the awareness of breath and body that I learned in my yoga practice and studies. There, there is beauty in discipline, and it can lift us to higher expressions of human potential in many spheres, like that coach that does say again, 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 and suddenly we can never do more than we believe possible. You know, that's amazing. And in other contexts, it's not just discipline like this. It's uh, life and death. Like you, you have careful safety checks preceding scuba or skydiving or on a firing range or in the hunt. Like if you mess up, it's life or death. So you have this high need to get it right. But in other contexts, what is portrayed as discipline can really be harmful and shaming dogma. And I know a lot of you have grown up with orthodox backgrounds of many kinds, and we know that doing it right is a mask for control. So orthodoxy, orthocorrect, and doxy is belief or opinion, might also be called rigid or uncompromising beliefs. Orthodoxy can create an environment that fosters abusive behavior because it's often coupled with unchecked authority 
a lack of transparency and a reluctance in general to address concerns or criticisms that come from the people who are outside of the power structure within that orthodoxy. So women, for example, or young people. And I would say that in my travels over the last many years that this is particularly true in things that are dealing in the mysteries, mystery schools, secret societies, disciplined esoteric or Gnostic practices, and any kind of highly ritualized religiosity. You can go back and hear some of the prior episodes we did on collective trauma um, in religion, collective trauma in women, pastoral abuse. We've done many episodes on the harm that can be caused by controlling power structures, but can also come from cultural norms like the body standards that I mentioned above. It can come from political parties or subcultures of many kinds. The many environments can be vulnerable to the slippage of discipline into dogma. I think there's a kind of a discipline that produces artistry or a joint execution on a mission And then there's a kind of discipline that is a dominance over others and over the body for the sheer purpose of dominance, for control. And that kind of zealotry builds walls uh, between in-groups and out-groups, between organizations. It's what leads to war and conflict. It limits individual growth, and it inhibits broader understanding and empathy. And so I feel that the, the harm you know, the first principle in yoga is ahimsa, first do no harm. The harm that it caused, that this inflexibility causes people is very real. So if you have grown up in a suppressive environment, either a family environment that says it has to be done this way, you have to get perfect grades, you have to look a certain way, or a religious environment that is orthodox, you might find yourself either doubling down on control and becoming a zealot yourself, Or you might find yourself turning away from any kind of discipline practice, even one that might be beneficial or enjoyable, because it triggers that memory of misaligned power and control. It kind of triggers and and wakes up the internalized voice of the oppressor. And the other thing is my little moment of shame for having my sage stick wrong or my skirt the wrong length or whatever at this teepee ceremony What I learned in the research is that shame is a common response in orthodox and dogmatic groups, that shame responses are triggered when individuals feel that they don't or can't measure up to the expectations set by their community, their culture, or their religious beliefs. And when someone is unable to conform, they can experience feelings of inadequacy, of self-blame, or of guilt. And these shame responses can also manifest in the fear of being excluded or rejected, that they're outside the hoop, and if they fail to adhere to the prescribed rules, they not only will be kicked out, uh, but they definitely won't be among the chosen ones or respected in by the insiders and, and the hierarchy. So ironically, or maybe sadly, this fear of rejection Uh, may further reinforce a person's need to control and conform to avoid the potential shame associated with being considered an outsider. And this heightened need for control and policing of other people as a defense mechanism to avoid facing the shame that they associate with not living up to the prescribed rules may become even more rigid. And over time, like people who are, you know, 
both self-policing and then policing others that there's a right way to do it, it gets more rigid over time. And they attempt to maintain this sense of their own worthiness by adhering very strictly to the established norms. And that's how you get that's how you get zealots and people who uh, forget to be empathic with others in their imperfection because they're not empathic with themselves in their imperfection. So other people just attempt to leave repressive organizations because restrictive environments foster this suffocation or emotional disconnection feeling, and they go in search of something more inclusive or compassionate where they can embrace their authenticity without fear of judgment or or being shamed. So if practices that are happening in the culture that they were with no longer serve their well-being, they go somewhere else. You know, I had this experience once where I had a friend who was 17 years with the same guru and like served him loyally. And and then one day the guy just was yelling at him for something that had that was wholly unnecessary and not emotionally mature. And the person, my friend just made an instant decision. He was like, you know what? I don't care how spiritually enlightened the person is. No one gets to talk to me that way. And then he just moved on. But, you know, it took a lot of abuse prior to that before he hit the breaking point to go and find a way to grow in alignment with his best interests. And even after that, leaving certain environments, communities, or belief systems, because we have taken in the voices of the orthodoxy for so long, we often have kind of internalized the oppressor. That's actually a a term of art, the internal oppressor. So unwinding the internalized oppressor, the voices that live inside of our heads, the ideas that have been planted there that we've learned can take a very long time. Thomas uh, Hubel says, uh, you don't really ever like fully heal your trauma because you're walking forever. What you attempt to do is to live in the present moment without the lens of your past and like meet things that they're arising. So, you know, taking off the filters of the prior programming can be a, a long process or careful process. I mean, Grace would say it can be an instantaneous process, but it can also be a, a careful and longer arc process. So, I mean, you have to also going with our core principles that we talk about that most deviant or not what what seem to be non-helpful behaviors had their original origin in uh, intelligent adaptation. So we do have to take a moment to inquire as to what's the draw. Like because this dogmatism is a pervasive tendency in human culture, it has to be an intelligent adaptation in some way. And we know that Psychosocial research knows that excessive control is often a defense mechanism against an inner chaos or an abusive environment, that, that it's a defense against feeling chaotic. Uh, tr- it it's, can be a way of numbing. Uh, so you, you basically have a situation where you discipline yourself to not feel you have these rules so that you don't have to feel that you can, it's a kind of a way of creating safety. So what I would say is that we go back to the intention behind the use of knowledge and practices. I have, I have one other story that I feel compelled to tell here. You know, I, I, I might have told this before. Ah, oh, I don't know, 110 episodes. It's, sometimes it's hard to remember what stories I have told before. So, uh, but I'll try. So 
I was raised in the Catholic Church, and after leaving and finding yoga and, and all kinds of things, I was invited back to give the eulogy for my great Aunt Ethel's funeral. And I went in to give the eulogy, and I saw this formal high mass through a totally different lens uh, that, you know, when people are kneeling, I knew from yoga and leaning back and opening the heart and in a prayer position that you're actually creating a somatic response of receptivity and surrender. So that's what the kneeling was about, all that standing and kneeling in the pews. When when the priest is doing incantations, you know, that's what chant is about. It creates a certain vibration in the body and the music and, and the the, the tonality and the repetition creates a, a calming effect in the nervous system. And that's what they were doing with that. And they were swinging incense. And they also do that like cleansing and saging in many other spiritual practices. And I could suddenly see the mystical and esoteric practices that the priests were doing had meaning. It wasn't just mumbo jumbo. And they were probably experiencing something very profound. But for us in the pews, it was like, just a bunch of ritual stuff that we didn't understand and wasn't having that same kind of effect. We weren't brought into the inner circle. And without being in the inner circle, it's like a performative show. So I want to say that these detailed rituals on some level, like as an as a anthropological tourist, are very beautiful and elegant. And even as a participant, they can be very beautiful and invite a state change. I mean, I write on that in reverence, how daily rituals can uh, really add meaning to our lives. Uh, but but when these practices and rituals, um, even the ones that are beautiful communions and ones that lead to ecstatic states and are particularly profound in deeply connected groups and communities, when these practices, rituals, or esoteric bases of knowledge get in the way of love, of kindness, of natural states of being in and with the body and earth, when these rituals no longer respect individual gifts and needs, like, hey, I'm 70 and I need to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night at this ritual, like, it's just normal. Why are you trying to dominate that? Resting among others in a community of equals, then these practices become tools of separation, not unification. So, you know, you don't have to do it right. Our worth doesn't depend on whether we adhere to specific rituals or dogmas. We don't need practices and rules to get to God or to derive worth. We don't have to be ritually perfect to be accepted or to belong. The world will not end if you break free. You won't go to hell for becoming free. So if you know maybe you know you don't have to do it right, you can come as you are, be loved and be held, be perfectly imperfect. Then if you know you don't have to do it right, maybe the natural love for discipline, detail, beauty, the natural curiosity for our highest potential or our highest art will reemerge, not as something that's imposed through shame and pressure and control, but as something that is coming from desire and joy. Oh, well, that is my sort of short summary on discipline and dogma and discipline and intent. I've written a lot more on how dogmatism can lead to abuse and why that happens on why it's hard to leave oppressive situations for people who are part of these uh, environments, and also what we can do about it if we're trying to change or leave a community or a belief system or or shift it. Um, what can we do about it? Uh, what are best practices for leaving? How do we plan and get the support we need? Uh, you can find that at my personal website, xtinem, xtinem.com, or christinemariemason.com, which redirects there, or you can find it at rosewoman.com in the archives. Uh, I'll put those links in the show notes also. To recap, 
if you have internalized an oppressive voice that you have to do things a certain way to be loved, or if people are shaming you for not being good enough in terms of a, a ritual container or an esoteric container, you might be in a dogmatic cult or a dogmatic ritual environment. If you are feeling the call to the joy of, of what one can create when you have a high attention to detail and you're collaborating with others and you're being mentored and you're being brought along in a way that's loving and supportive and then doesn't question the very value of your personhood for when you make a mistake, then you're probably in a really beautiful competence hierarchy, not a dominance hierarchy. So I wish everybody out there uh, the vision to see uh, where discipline is being summoned in areas where you do want to create exceptional beauty and it's coming out of true desire, uh, where you're resisting discipline just because you don't want to be told what to do or your like inner pout has taken over, um, where you have too much overlay of like, I've got to do it right, I've got to do it right, and it's creating an up-leveling in your anxiety field, in your energy field, and, and where you yourself might be treating others in a way that uh, makes them less than for not adhering to some kind of arbitrary rule that um, you've made up because you know we've made it up, right? We've made it up. There are too many people who believe that this is the way, the certain specific way, and it's completely different from the person next to them, and they punish people for not doing it their way when if they went down the street, it would be exactly the opposite. I mean, in the spiritual tradition that I'm trained in, you don't eat animals, you don't eat animals. And I went to this one and they were serving veal, like not veal, they were serving venison stew. And it was like considered one of the core staples of their diet. You know, and it's a spiritual practice to bring in the corn, the venison, and the berries after a ceremony, the three staples of their diet. And, you know, for me, I'm like, oh, you know, that that is, it took me a minute to like swallow my dogmatism and to not judge that. So it's like, how do we hold our beliefs lightly, hold them lightly for ourselves and hold them lightly for others and be in curiosity about the things where we want to evoke more discipline? And as promised, I will end with some inspirational quotes. Uh, this time I want to offer a few from Bell Hooks. She is one of my favorites, uh, in influential thinker and writer. I mean, some people say a feminist thinker and writer, but she's a thinker and writer in her own right. And she's written a lot about race and gender and class and how they intersect. Her work emphasizes the importance of education and love and community building in challenging systems that oppress us. And, and she inspires people to critically examine and transform their own perspectives on society and relationships. So for example, she says, to build community requires vigilant awareness of the work we must continually do to undermine all the socialization that leads us to behave in ways that perpetuate domination. So let me just rephrase, re-say that. Undermine all the socialization that leads us to behave in ways that perpetuate domination. She writes, love is an endless act of forgiveness and forgiveness is an endless act of love. She writes, the heart of oppression is the loss of memory. And isn't that perfect for the topic we were just talking about? Like you have to block out so much and forget so much in order to continue living in a dominating and oppressive way. The heart of oppression is the loss of memory. 
And then here's the last one I'll share from her. When we drop fear, we can draw nearer to people. We can draw nearer to the earth. We can draw nearer to all the heavenly creatures that surround us. So really what we're talking about in unwinding these internal orthodoxies is, is unwinding fear. Maybe we get down to simply saying, I'm afraid, and nothing more complicated than that, and not build dogmas around it, and just feel that in our body. All right, um, thank you for joining me today on episode 110. I would love to hear comments or hear feedback. You can reach me on Instagram at the.rose.woman. You can always write to me, christine at rosewoman.com. And I read everything. I appreciate your reviews so much and your taking episodes that you like and sharing them with people directly in a text message or something like that. And of course, sharing them socially. Uh, sometimes, you know, we write, I write books, I write articles, I formulate products, I do the pod. I, I'm putting a lot out there and it feels really great to be in dialogue with other people who care about these topics. So definitely reach out and touch me, babe. Come on, come on, come on, come on, touch me, babe. Okay. All love in everything you do.